When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Looking for new threads? Well, we've got you covered at the Music Is Live podcast official merch store over at tpublic.com. Whether it's t-shirts, baseball tees, hoodies, coffee mugs, travel mugs, phone cases, or onesies for your infant rockers and metalheads, you can find everything you're looking for over at the Music Is Live podcast merch store at tpublic. Go to my link tree at l-i-n-k-a-t-r dot e-e forward slash Music Is Live podcast and get your merch today. Buy my stuff and thanks for your support. TerraNut is proud to offer you a natural nut bar chock full of healthy fats, minerals, and protein that meet your demands. Go to their website, www.terranut.com. You can order from them directly, and they will ship it to you. Use my coupon code, LUMAVS, and you will get a 25% discount on your first order. TerraNut Superfood Snacks, www.terranut.com. Don't forget to use coupon code, LUMAVS, at checkout. Fuel your life. Looking for some new podcasts to listen to? Well, look no further than the Ratsaw Review Network. Ratsaw Review is taking over the podcast world with plenty of shows to choose from within their network of entertaining programming, including the flagship show, Ratsaw Review, with Wayne Noon, Greg Noggle, and Lou Mavs, as well as occasional co-hosts Manny Mejias and James Lilquist. We also have the official Ratsaw Review spin-offs, such as Album vs. Album, Screams from the Grave, where we discuss beloved yet forgotten hard rock and metal albums of the past, and a King Diamond podcast called This Broadcast Belongs to Them. We've also got Old Man Metal's Musings, the Metal Thrashing Nerd podcast with Metal Thrashing Mike, the Timo Toki podcast featuring Stradivarius and Avalon founding member Timo Toki, The BS Sessions with Mark and Jerry, Just the Cheese Please, a podcast dedicated to cheesy films of the 1980s with Tara J and Adam, and the Music is Live podcast with Lou Mavs. The Ratsaw Review Network is your go-to one-stop shop for the best podcasts out there today. Go to RatsawReview.com for more info, and to find out where you can find, follow, subscribe, and comment on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and all streaming platforms. The Ratsaw Review Network. We're taking over. Hey everyone, hope you're having a great day. Thanks for watching Music is Live podcast on my channel or on the Red Star Review channel. Couple of questions I've been asked. The primary one being, where the hell have you been? I realize it's been a very long time since my last original episode. I did do the episode with Brian Tatler of Diamond Head, but that was specifically for Red Star Review that I thought people who subscribe to my channel would like to watch. So what have I been doing for the past couple of months? Well, a couple of things. Number one, my dog, Wishes, was unfortunately diagnosed with anal gland carcinoma. Thankfully, it was detected early because two weeks prior, he had his physical, where our vet, Dr. Alexis Fafa, who is an amazing vet, said that he was fine. Everything checked out. People need to remember that the life of one human year is equivalent to seven in dogs. So with dogs, things are just much more rapid. So they were able to remove the tumor as well as both anal glands, one that had the tumor on it and the other one for preventative measures along with 1.3 millimeters of tissue around it. He wasn't technically cancer-free because there 
is always residual that happens around there. So he is currently undergoing chemotherapy. The option that they gave us was radiation or chemotherapy. If we chose radiation, there was only three places that we could take him. One was in Yonkers, one was in Manhattan, and one was in New Jersey. However, it had to be daily for three weeks straight. We just didn't have the resources to do that. I work full-time, my wife works full-time, and we have a four-year-old daughter. So the other option was chemotherapy, which Long Island veterinary specialists said that with six rounds of chemotherapy, every four weeks, they'll test his blood to make sure that it's doing great. He had a second round of chemo just fairly recently, a little over a week ago, and his blood work has been fine. And this is him right now. He's doing so much better. He's got his disposition back. And <laughs> at this point, that's really all I care about. They say statistically that with this kind of cancer, when detected at an early stage, dogs can live an average of nine to 12 months longer. However, odds are proven that they sometimes do live much longer than that. So let's hope that I get more years out of him, or at least just quality of life with him, which so far has been great. So that was the unfortunate thing. But the best news is I'm back to writing and recording original music. I actually just had a song released with Doc Reinhardt called I'll Turn the Light Out for You, which I'm very proud of. Just finished recording a song with my buddy Matt Michelow of Michelow Beats, who's going to be on a later episode. And I'm back to writing and recording music with Wayne Noon of Ratsai Review. Alex Rapetti of Infinite Spectrum and Tension Rising, George Dimitri of Timeless Haunt, and Mark Muchnick of The Nightmare Stage. We're called Severed Angel. We have a couple of singles out already, including our cover of Ghost Square Hammer and our original songs by the time of this recording, which are A Fate Worse Than Death and Run and Hide. Very proud of the work we've done. We've actually just wrote and recorded and finished an album in three months and i'm looking forward to releasing that so that's what's been going on sorry i haven't been putting out as much content as i like but family takes priority anyways my apologies to all my guests <laughs> thanks bud my apologies to all my guests professor william Irwin, the gentleman over at moneybag sodas and also to Signal to Noise and to Michael Brandvold. He was the gentleman that was kind enough to get Signal to Noise and Moneybag Soda's episodes done. That's what's been going on, but thanks for your patience. Hope you like these string of episodes that I'm going to be releasing. And uh, remember, all art is valid. You're listening to the Music is Life podcast with your host, Lou Mabs. On the Rat Sound Review Network. Music is Live Podcast. This is your host, Lou Mavs. Check out everything you need to know about the show over at musicislivepodcast.com. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm a huge fan of the band Metallica, but I don't really talk about Metallica because everyone knows who they are. I was hesitant for fear of providing overexposure to them. And besides, they don't need my help. However, that doesn't mean I don't have any issue with promoting someone who releases something Metallica related. In this case, my guest today is a professor of philosophy at King's College in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. 
who is considered the originator of the philosophy and popular culture book genre with books on Seinfeld and The Simpsons and many points in between. He has released a book called The Meaning of Metallica, Ride the Lyrics through ECW Press, which is based on the lyrics of James Hetfield. And we're here today to talk about his work. I'm proud to have on the podcast today as my guest, Professor William Irwin. Hey, thanks for having me on, Lou. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you, and please call me Bill. Will do. All right, Bill, thank you. First time I think I've ever been allowed to call a professor by the first name. (laughs) Take that, St. John's University. (laughs) (laughs) Right. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, yeah. June in Pennsylvania, where I am, is beautiful. Awesome. I'll actually be visiting Pennsylvania this summer. My daughter wants to go to Dutch Wonderland again, so we'll probably take a vacation out there. Yeah, I was there with my kids when they were young. They're 18 and 16 now. We might even go back just to hit the uh, the, the Waffle House, the, yeah, <laughs> and the Waffle House. Is awesome too. Yeah, right. Very cool. You've already been interviewed by Wayne Noon, my partner over at Rat Side Review. Rat um, Salad and Wayne and Manny was on the uh, the podcast as well that day. Yeah, Manny was actually the one who recommended your book. No, oh, we cool. had a kick out of it. Wayne mentioned to me that you were interested in talking with other podcasts, and he brought sure. the opportunity to me and. You know, the point of the show, Music is Life, is to talk about music, its impact on people, how much we enjoy it, and just all facets of it. You know, I mean, I've had people from various parts of within and without of the industry, you know, whether they're people in fashion or people in photography. You're actually my first professor, so that's pretty cool. All right, cool. And I, I, I was listening to the, uh, the the episode in defense of Peter Steele, which I thought was a lot of fun. Someone listens to my show. <laughs> What'd you think of that? Yeah. Oh, it was great. I, I, I you know, I, I lost track of things with what was going on in that world after his death. And I didn't even realize that there was, was Carnivore AD. Is that the, uh, the name of the band? Now? Carnivore AD is the tribute band that my friend Baron Mizoraka is the oh, vocalist yeah. and bassist for basically playing the music of carnivore which was pete's band before typo negative to the masses pretty much and it's been so far it's been getting a great response uh there's been a demand for pete's music especially in europe and they actually just played a uh summer metal concert series in upstate new york alongside exodus and voivod of Ah. all bands so I'm really happy for Baron. And, you know, uh, there was always the misconception that Pete was, you know, uh, misogynist or uh, male chauvinist or racist. And he wasn't any of those things, you know, so I thought you did a great job with with Baron of clearing that kind of stuff up. It was really good. to Thank you. Thank you. I mean, you know, I've read articles and interviews with Pete in the past before. But the problem is, it's like, you know, and, 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 and you as a professor, you've experienced this where, you know, sometimes people are so engulfed in what they've been told to believe or kind of what they've been spoon fed that sometimes if something breaks their narrative, it's hard for them to take. So they just deny it. Uh, cognitive dissonance, I guess. you Yeah, call no, it. That, that's right. It's, it's very hard for people to break out or else to have that narrative. 
that that's a story. And if the details don't fit the story, well, they're not going to accept the details. Well, I'm glad that I could uh, add to the narrative in defense of Peter Steele, hence the name of the episode. So, you know, but I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thank you. So I'll proceed with you. My love for the band Metallica. I was seven years old when I first heard Master of Puppets. Uh, Both of my brothers who were older than me by 12 to 15 years were huge fans of the band. My eldest brother had Master Puppets on cassette. My older brother had, at, at the time, it was just uh, Kill 'em All, Ride the Lightning, Master Puppets, and, and Justice for All. So they were one of his favorite bands. So mind you, this is before the Black Album. At first, I loved Metallica because it was fast, loud, hard, and exciting. But I have to admit, it wasn't until I was about 11 or 12 years old when I first heard Dyer's Eve. By the time I was kind of old enough to understand what he was saying, what the lyrics were about, I I really engulfed myself in what he was singing. Not to say that I came from a troubled home, but to to hear what he was singing about and for it to like just smack you in the face, like it make that kind of impact. I'm sure a lot of people from my generation and younger can even relate to the lyrical content, especially with a song like Dyer's Eve. What was it about Metallica that drew your interest to write a book about them? Yeah, well, I, I've been almost a lifelong fan. I'm a bit older than you. I'm 52. And uh, so my, you look my, great. <laughs> yeah, right. My first contact with the band or exposure was 1984. Ride the Lightning was a relatively new album, and my uh, my buddy Joe, uh, Beavis to my butthead or butthead to my Beavis or whatever, uh, had a copy of the album. And as we did back in the day, uh, he made a, a cassette tape of it for me. And, uh, you know, like you say, it's not only harder and faster and heavier than anything else that was going on that I was aware of at that time, but it was also deeper. And aside from being a kind of, uh, you know, aspiring Beavis or Butthead before there were such people uh, or characters, uh, you know, I also had my sort of emo uh, tendencies and intellectual or pseudo-intellectual tendencies. And uh, so the, the first song to really speak to me was Fade to Black, uh, which really spoke, uh, you know, listeners will probably know it's uh, a song about suicide. And it really spoke to my feelings of angst and alienation and despair and all that kind of thing. And, and right from the beginning, like so many other listeners and fans, uh, I found that to be uh, a song of hope uh, rather than one uh, that uh, was encouraging uh, to indulge the negative or to go uh, all the way. Uh, to uh, the uh, reaction of self-harm. So that, that's where it came in for me. That's a pretty detailed answer. And yeah, I guess in terms of timeline, when I was old enough to understand the lyrics, Fade to Black, it wasn't until the death of, uh, I should say the suicide of Kurt Cobain, where it's like when I kind of put idea to thought. And I remember when his uh, note was read on MTV. And it's funny because I, I remember this because it was so cryptic. Right after that, I turned the radio on and uh, Q104.3, which is at the time was a hard rock station in New York, was playing Fade to Black. And it was just like, wow, that's creepy, you know, and like kind of listening to it and thinking about what just transpired. And the thing about Metallica that I love the most, aside from the music, is really the lyrics, because finally I felt like metal fans had a band that they could relate to lyrically on an emotional level. 
You know, it's like all the stuff that James went through growing up between losing his mother um, because, you know, he was raised Christian science and she needed a blood transfusion. And he was told that, you know, the body is a temple and it'll, you know, and this is not an anti-religion thing that I'm talking about. I'm just saying this is what happened to him at the time, you know, and, and for him to put pen to paper and like just unleash his pain in a positive way and just inspire a bunch of kids to either pick up a guitar or find hope within their music. I think it's a testament, not just to him, but to the band in general for being able to make the kids relate to something like that. I mean, I, I, for me, I think Metallica is the one metal band since Black Sabbath where people could really relate to on a personal level. Because, you know, their music, the lyrics, it all meant something. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree 100%. Uh, and it, it, it's funny the way that it works, right? And you even talked about listening to them. And at first, you, you're really tuned into the uh, to the music. And for some people, uh, the instrumentation and, and the heavy music is fine, right? That, that That's all that they need. Uh, but it, it's, it's something that can be listened to and appreciated on, on different levels, sometimes at different, uh, points in life. And, and the lyrics, uh, are, are as intricate as the, uh, the down picking and the riffing and, and everything else. They really have been, uh, honed and crafted, uh, in, in most cases. Right. And, uh, uh aside from the sort of angry tone of the music and, and some of the lyrics, which is all some people hear, uh, particularly if they're not big fans of the band or, or the metal genre, uh, there really is a great deal of vulnerability uh, that Hetfield expresses lyrically uh, and as, as well as, uh, as musically and instrumentally. And uh Fade to Black, of course, was a song that, that he didn't write out of uh, a feeling of suicidal despair himself. The story behind it goes that uh, some gear had been stolen and uh, it was kind of a, a real emotional low point. And what he did was, uh, was use that kind of down emotion to tap into the feeling of, uh, of what it would be like to be. Uh, in the mindset of a suicidal person. And this is what great artists do, whether they're poets, lyric writers, actors, uh, they, they tap into it and they uh, create their art from it. And uh, the song has just always been very uh, important to me. And uh, it was very uh, good to see actually just in a, in a recent concert uh, back in, uh, in Boston a couple of weeks ago, uh, that uh, in uh, in bringing the uh, song uh, out for the uh, for the concert audience, uh, Hetfield talked about struggling, uh, and he wasn't necessarily, I don't think, talking about struggling with suicide himself. Although who knows? Uh, but he talked about how he struggles uh, every day. I mean, part of his struggle, of course, is with uh, with addiction and. Uh, with reigning in anger and, uh, and emotional issues, that sort of thing. And uh, this was something I haven't seen him do before in the past, uh, talk to the audience about uh, his own struggle and vulnerability uh, and encourage them uh, that if they identified uh, with what he was saying in the song and there uh, from the stage to talk, all right? Talk to uh, friends, uh, talk to him, talk to anyone 
uh, and uh, don't live with it all on your own. So I just thought that was great. And that's something, although that was an important message in the song and the music from back in 1984, uh, it, it shows something of his own personal development uh, and a, almost a sense of responsibility to fans that he was uh, willing to be vulnerable and speaking that way uh, off the cuff and not just through the lyrics. I've always appreciated that about him because for me, as a fan, it brings me a lot of hope. So Yeah, and, and, um, and just not an easy thing for him to do. He's not a kind of naturally charismatic guy the way that like David Lee Roth is. I want to take this time to say that this is real whiskey here. The only people who put iced tea in Jack Daniels bottles is the Clash, baby! That's charisma on a whole different level, and I love it's Van Halen. Yeah, it's a different kind of... I mean, there is a, a charisma to Hetfield, but it's more like the strong, silent type, the Clint Eastwood type charisma, right? And there are a lot of things that he wasn't sort of, uh, you know, desiring to do or naturally meant to do that that he's done, right? He didn't really want to be a singer, uh, would have been, you know, happier just playing uh, rhythm guitar. But, you know, it fell to him to do the singing, and uh, he really has called cultivated an impressive singing ability, unique phrasing, and uh, a very distinctive voice. Yeah. I don't sound like that, do I? And more on point for what we were just saying, uh, he was not a natural front man in any kind of way, but at first was standing kind of back to the audience. And when Dave was in the band, letting Mustaine do a lot of the talking, but he's really, really cultivated those abilities. And I think uh, hand in hand with that is probably lyric writing is something that he didn't uh, necessarily need or want to do uh, back as a 19 or 20 year old, but it fell to him to do it. And he's taken it, you know, very seriously. And while he's a more naturally talented guitar player than lyric writer, I think he's worked as hard or harder uh, when it comes to shaping the lyrics rather than just do something half-assed and, and leave well enough alone. Two things. One, I do know that at one point they wanted John Bush of Armored Saint to be the front man. Me ended up being the singer of Anthrax in 93. I'm a huge Armored Saint fan and I would have loved to have heard Metallica with John Bush on vocals. So I'm glad that at their 30th anniversary concerts, he came out and did Four Horsemen with them. I mean, he just killed it. One last man, four and blow, better raise your ears. The sound not getting Probably my favorite version of that song I ever heard. And that's not taking anything away from James Hetfield. Two, we were talking about Fade to Black before. My biggest regret, I never got to see them play it live. I was at the SM show in 99 at Madison Square Garden, where they played with the St. Luke Orchestra with Michael Kamen conducting, rest in peace, Michael Kamen. And I I knew that they were going to perform, you know, all the songs from the live album. I just wish that they had done Fade to Black. They didn't. 
Yeah, I was so shocked. That would have been great with the symphony orchestra. Would have lent itself well to to orchestration. Yeah, I mean, in in itself, is a classical piece with distorted guitars. It really is. Yeah, but I mean, Metallica's got so many great songs to choose from. They can't play everything. It's completely understandable. And and I realized that the casual fan knows the Black Album, so of course, a lot of the material in their live shows have to come from that and and that's okay we have the music that they released prior to that we could put that on whenever we want and metallica's one thing i love about them is the fact that they actually post on their youtube channel a bunch of videos of you know not just their popular songs but even their rare songs that the met club films right right you know, they really yeah, are people's well, band hey, that's right and then fade to black is is back in the, the set list that they've been playing it and uh people should check out the uh the boston recording that has him speaking about uh about his struggle from from the stage that really is uh i think pretty moving definitely hey boston you as an author you know social commentary on pop culture it's not a new thing growing up in the 80s i remember watching the television and seeing the pmrc trials which is what led to the recording industry putting parental advisory stickers on albums i remember the bible belt burning metal records i remember people accusing kiss of satanism when all their songs were about getting laid people there was nothing satanic about it I could keep going, but you've made part of your career on interpreting elements of pop culture and breaking it down to the most common denominator on its resonation with people across all cultures. Definitely something that was never really tapped into until you touched on it. What would you say was the impetus for you writing your books on capturing the philosophy of so many fandoms from Metallica to Star Wars to Harry Potter to South Park. Yeah, thanks for the uh, for the question. Uh, so I, I, I teach uh, at a small college in uh, in Pennsylvania, and we have uh, required philosophy classes. So I have uh, a lot of uh, captive audience members. Back in the, the late '90s, when I first started teaching there, Seinfeld was just the biggest show on television, and uh, you know it was the days before. Pop culture was so dispersed that, uh, you know, there were all these little uh, silos of fandoms. Back then, uh, Seinfeld and then uh, likewise, uh, The Simpsons, shortly thereafter in particular, uh, were just known by everyone. Uh, so basically what I was trying to do is, is bridge the gap between philosophy, which is uh, sort of an odd and uh, foreign subject for most people entering college. They've not had it in high school. American culture doesn't put a lot of emphasis on it. So I would just try to find common uh, ground in a a Seinfeld episode or character and bring it into class. And so when the show was going off the air, what was that, 98, 99? That was kind of a bad moment for me because where am I going to get my material from uh, for class anymore? And And it turned out I wasn't the only one who was doing that. I had uh, friends who were also generally younger philosophy professors 
who are making these connections. And so Seinfeld and Philosophy, which was the first book of this kind, is a collection of uh, essays uh, into chapter form by various philosophy professors, making some connection between Seinfeld and philosophy. That worked out very well, both critically and commercially. And so as you uh, alluded to, it sort of gave birth to a whole series of books, uh, The Simpsons in Philosophy, The Matrix in Philosophy, Star Wars and philosophy, Harry Potter and philosophy. We keep going. Uh, I did a Metallica and philosophy at one point, and that was likewise an edited collection with a whole bunch of contributing authors. This new book, though, that we're referencing in particular today, The Meaning of Metallica, is the first book that uh, focuses just uh, singly on, on the lyrics of Metallica, and this one uh, I'm the sole author behind. But it just seems to me there's lots of intelligent things going on in lots of pop culture, uh, be it uh, song lyrics, movies, television shows. It's worth paying attention to. And and lots of times uh, the fandoms are aware uh, of and really value what's going on in terms of uh, the ideas and the intellectual content in whatever they are, songs, video games, movies, television shows, etc. I also want to put over the fact that you've written books on socioeconomic political themes, as well as religion, including God is a question, not an answer, finding common ground in our uncertainty, and the free market existentialist capitalism without consumerism. Now, I haven't read those books, but those are two topics that I have interest in in my personal life. But I never discuss those topics on the podcast because for two reasons. Number one, I don't think it's my role in life because this is a music podcast, so I try to keep it separate. Also, I don't want to add to the culture war. I'm perfectly happy with my state as a podcast host, but I'm intrigued in reading them. With things today being as they are, and this is probably the first time I'll ever ask a question like this in the last time, (laughs) but uh, with things today being as they are from arguments over political ideology, clashes over what capitalism is as opposed to what people claim it is, Supreme Court decisions that have people in an uproar, and the idea of faith versus religion because there is a difference. Has it led more room for you to want to write more about the subject and go deeper into these studies or, you know, have more discussions with even more subject matter experts? Yeah, right. So thanks for the reference to to those books as well. Uh, I I have... I dig deep. A <laughs> couple of different hats that I wear. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I appreciate your avoiding the minefields of uh, of religion and politics and keeping the the focus on uh, on music with your podcast. But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, th- these are subjects that that everybody cares about in one way or another. But the the problem tends to be uh, that we kind of silo ourselves in with uh, one point of view or another and, and look for narratives that, that support it. And so part of my role as a philosophy professor, uh, like, like you as the podcast host, I, I don't broadcast my own political or religious uh, views, even though they are connected to, uh, to philosophy when I'm teaching. I see my job as a uh, teacher in the classroom is, is trying to teach how to think rather than what to think, and in some way playing the role of, uh, of therapists uh, with the class in the sense of getting them to think and discover for themselves what they think and to have good reasons behind it. So y- yeah, that this certainly uh, is the kind of 
subject area that uh, that I'm uh, uh, drawn to, and uh, I, I I try in my writings as well as in uh, discussions to be a kind of a, a calm and uh, and rational voice, uh, trying to find room for common agreement uh, among between sides, like the. Uh, uh, the book that you mentioned, but that the God is a question book, uh, is basically trying to highlight room for uncertainty on either side of uh, of the issues relating to the existence of God and uh, find common ground, as the subtitle mentions. I like it when people are more open to finding things out rather than dictating to you, no, this this never happened. For example, I just recently took my daughter to a dinosaur exhibit. And she thought the dinosaurs were real because they were moving, but she didn't realize they were animatronics. But <laughs> yeah. to be able to open that up to her so she could see that, no, these actually existed at one point. I mean, to see the sense of wonder in her eyes was yeah. was really cool. And, you know, I, I, I think it's good to ask questions. I think it's good to have wonderment about things because it, it, it leaves you open to kind of expanding your own thing. And I don't mean using hallucinogenics to get there, people. I'm just saying, you know, do some research, you know, look it up for yourself. Read a book. Read one of Professor William Irwin's books. Oh, yeah! Ah. Famous plug. <laughs> yeah, that's it. So, I mean, I agree. that it, it's, uh, it's been said that philosophy begins in wonder. And I love the story of, uh, of your daughter, right? I mean, if, if we can... Uh, keep those childlike uh, views and, uh, and open eyes, uh, we're, we're much better off in a sense of humility and in, in recognizing that we may have degrees of confidence in, in beliefs, but uh, we need to be open uh, to revision and the possibility of being wrong and, uh, and just find some wonder in the wide world and, and doing some, uh, some digging uh, into, into our history and into our culture. It's definitely enlightening talking to a, a child and seeing their wonderment about the world as opposed to dealing with a cynical adult who's already made up their mind and just such a downer, you know? <laughs> Yeah. I've learned that from being a father. Are there any parts of pop culture that you haven't touched yet with your books that you'd eventually like to? Or are there any parts that you'd like to revisit, especially yeah. now with yeah. Star Wars being so reinvigorated with the series, uh, all the different series from The Mandalorian, which, by the way, tie in a Mandalorian T-shirt in the font <laughs> of Ride the Lightning. Yeah. So uh, we actually so in this book series, I, I'm, I'm not the. Uh, the editor of every single book play the role of uh, series editor for for the whole series, which uh, is a little bit of inside baseball. But just to forecast a little bit of what's coming, you mentioned The Mandalorian and Star Wars. We have a, a new Star Wars and philosophy book that, that's coming out that will deal not only with the, uh, the, the three trilogies, but also uh, expanded universe things, including uh, the Mandalorian and uh, Book of Boba Fett and all that kind of jazz. And uh, so, yeah, that there's a continual supply. And, and Star Wars is a great one because the fandom is is so huge. Uh, you ask about things that that I'd like to see covered. Uh, uh, we haven't done as much with video games as I would like the series to do. Uh, partly, I guess I'm to blame because I'm I'm old and uh, not really a gamer. But, he looks but younger problem... than me, people. I don't know what he's talking about. 
<laughs> I don't know about that, Lou, you're very kind. But I think some of the difficulty with, with, with video games is finding uh, the one that will work so that there's a big enough audience that they're interested in uh, in a book on philosophy tying together with that video game. It's It's not like... Pac-Man fever back when I was uh, a kid where there's this one video game that's dominating, right? I mean, and one song that dominated the charts at the same time too. Forget about that. But my impression with, with video games is that, you know, so many of them require such an investment of time and energy. One franchise that we're looking at doing is The Witcher, because not only is that a, a, a video game franchise, but a series of novels and television shows so that you can tap into lots of different things. I'm actually a fan of uh, Michael Moorcock, especially the uh, Eric of Melnib, Mil- however it's pronounced, Elric, the uh, the albino owner of Stormbringer, the Black Blade. Um, a lot of people draw parallels between The Witcher and Elric. Have, have you noticed any, you think? Oh, I, I'm, I'm not well enough informed uh, to, to give a, a great opinion there, but but it, it does seem sort of set up to, to make that comparison. All right, I'll start, wa- I'll start watching The Witcher. You start reading Elric. We're good. All right. <laughs> Sounds good. I'm not really a gamer myself. I actually stopped playing video games when I started going for my master's degree, but I've always loved Legend of Zelda. So that's probably like the one video game series that I've 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 followed religiously. That would be cool to actually see somebody write a novel on that and like the, you know, the philosophies behind it or, you know, why does it seem to be retelling the different stories at different points in time? You know, and, you know, is it Link? Is it a different Link? You know, is it a different universe? I mean, I think that would be cool, something cool to expand to. But I just think yeah. people with Zelda, they're just happy to play the games. But I could be wrong. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a matter of finding the, the, you know, the right audience, as all things are. But yeah, Z- Zelda. Right and it, Zelda, I think, uh, is continuing too, right? Is there a new uh, iteration of it? Oh, I don't. I, I haven't bought a Nintendo system since the Wii. Yeah. So uh, now being a full-time dad and a full-time worker, it's uh, there's no video games. I know. Just, yeah, <laughs> you have to cut something out, right? Pretty much. Oh, war to me. What would you say was the greatest finding about your digging into the lyrics of Metallica? And what would you say it says about James Hetfield or even Metallica fans? What would you say it says about them? Well, I mentioned before the uh, the vulnerability, uh, which didn't surprise me. Just in terms of actual surprise and, and talking about vulnerability. I mean, Metallica is certainly not known for their love songs, right? Uh, you think of something else matter and nothing else matters. <laughs> <laughs> Boo. Uh, yeah, I, I, I could do without that one. I've heard it so many times. <laughs> I know, I know, right? I mean, real listener fatigue there, right? Uh, but in the book, I look as sort of companion to uh, Nothing Else Matters, the the Unforgiven 2, uh, which is also a kind of, uh, of a love song, although a much darker uh, one right where uh, it, it's the the narrator falling in love uh, and finding sort of shelter from the storm uh, with uh, this ally right this woman that that he loves 
Uh, and I had listened to the song many, many times. I, you know, it's hard to even uh, guesstimate these things hundreds of times, I'm sure. But until I sat down to really analyze it for the book, I hadn't realized uh, that uh, the narrator ends up killing uh, the, uh, the woman. Uh, and it looks like, if I read the lyrics correctly, it's as a result of, uh, of a betrayal, right? Probably uh, romantic infidelity. Uh, and uh, I'll just read from the, from the lyrics in, in case uh, you're curious or people are curious, right? That these are the lines that really struck me. The lyrics run, come beside me, this won't hurt, I swear. She loves me not, she loves me still, but, but she'll, she'll never, never love again. again. Right. She lay beside me, but she'll be there when I'm gone. Black heart scarring darker still. Yes, she'll be there when I'm gone. Yes, she'll be there when I'm gone. Dead sure she'll be there. Right. And then uh, a little later, it says, how can I uh, a little bit later? Uh, it says, wait, let me find that line. Yeah. And I take this key and I bury it in you because you're unforgiven, too. Uh, and there's really kind of a, a dark humor to that. Uh, this episode's taking quite a dark turn right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That the song is really much darker and, and subtler than I had ever given uh, given a credit for. And uh, yeah, so that that was a real surprise. One thing I'll say about Metallica in the '90s, I mean, really, it's only three studio albums and a dual compilation disc that came out, and of course, the live shit binge and purge box set and the S and M double disc, the live album. There is a lot of great material on the Black album that I feel like is incredibly overlooked because it's not any of the singles. You know, I mean, there's some great stuff on that. I would have to say the same thing about Load and Reload. I know a lot of my hardcore metal friends will say, oh, I got Metallica sold out. Yeah, I'll grunge, alternative, this and that. And I'm just like, have you listened to the songs? You know, yeah. I mean, I, I, I can remember uh, Bleeding Me hit me. That song, Outlaw Torn, those songs hit me at a point in life when it was relevant to what was happening in my life at the time. You know, I would have to say that maybe not as metal songwriters, but as songwriters in general, as lyricists, I mean, there's definite maturity there. I mean, James Hetfield at 30 is not the same James Hetfield at 19 years old. No, so that, that, you, that's, you have to accept growth. That's for sure. I mean, I had my ups and downs with them emotionally at that time, too. And, and for me, part of it was it was just such a, a downtime for metal at that point. Grunge had, had really sort of swept in. You have, uh, you know, Rob Halford leaving Judas Priest and doing his uh, odd stuff. You have Bruce Dickinson uh, out of Iron Maiden. And when, when the Load albums came out, I mean, you were really, uh, speaking for myself, I was really hoping for someone to carry the metal torch, right? And and so to get something that didn't sound as metal and certainly not as thrashy as we might want from Metallica just felt like, oh, everybody's jumping ship on this. But in, in terms of the quality, I mean, the game is always played by people. Make your own compilation of Load and Reload, right? I mean, certainly there are enough great songs there to make uh, a great album. Agreed. There are some real high points and, you know, some real low points, especially lyrically. Really great addiction songs uh, on those two albums that are often overlooked as uh, addiction songs, uh, a topic that I cover uh, in detail in the book, The House That Jack Built, 
low man's lyric fixer these these are just great songs lyrically very subtle it's also uh you know a couple of albums where you have some real duds lyrically in terms of things like two by four ain't my bitch that kind of thing really i I like those songs i'm not gonna lie but uh, i get what you're saying yeah, they rock, but I mean, they're just not as, as sophisticated as, as some of the other songs. I remember kids at my school, if they didn't want to do something, they're like, nah, it ain't my bitch. I'm like, oh, geez. <laughs> yeah. you know, though, it's funny because I was 15 going on 16 in 96. So I, I remember this like it was yesterday. Metallica releases load. They have short hair. Everyone's like, oh, my God, what have they done? And, you know, the first thing that you hear isn't fight fire with fire, but it's ain't my bitch. And yeah, people freaked out about that. But I think the reason why I wasn't mad about it, because a lot of my friends were, they were pissed about it, but I wasn't mad about it because I was like, you know, they, cause they already did that. Like Def Leppard already released Pyromania. Iron Maiden already released Number of the Beast, Peace of Mind. To me, it was like, you know, Metallica already released their their trilogy of greatness. And you could pick whatever you want, whether it's Kill Em All to Master or Ride the Lightning to Injustice for All, depending on what you think. Even though 96 was not a great year for metal in the mainstream, if you dug deep into like what was being released independently on labels like Metal Blade or Roadrunner Records or, you know, what have you, you know, even Halloween. The band Halloween, my favorite album from them is Time of the Oath. That album came out in 96. Typo Negative had October Rust. Fear Factory released Demanufacture the year before. There was great metal that was out at the time, but, you know, mainstream publications, MTV, they didn't pay any attention to it because, you know, it didn't come in a flannel shirt. No, but, that, that, that's absolutely right. Looking back on that time, I, I'm about 10 years older than you, right? So I'm 26, 27 when the reload load and reload are, are coming out. And uh, in a way, I was just too old to discover newer music. But there was, a, I mean, even the bands you mentioned are relatively mainstream, but in, in death metal and black metal, which I've just never really been able to get into myself, despite trying. I mean, there was great stuff going on at that time, at the time in those genres, but you just mm-hmm. didn't know about it unless you were a hardcore fan seeking it out. Agreed. And if you could read what the band names were with some of those black metal <laughs> bands, you're lucky. Right, right. <laughs> Is there a particular album from Metallica that you do prefer, either due to the music in general or just by the lyrics alone? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I don't have any uh, surprising answers to that. Ride the Lightning and Master of Puppets will always be my favorites, both in terms of uh, music and lyrics and just what, what they uh, they were just so much a part of my life at that time. But like I said, I've come to, I share your opinion on uh, on the Black Album. There are great songs, particularly the, the non-singles. I mean, I like the singles too, but songs like uh, The God That Failed and uh, The Struggle Within and Through the Never, all that stuff on, on the Black Album and, and uh, some real uh, highlights on, uh, on the Load Albums. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad that in hindsight, people could finally admit that those albums were great or they had, they had great moments on it. But, uh, you know, eh, it's people's opinions, you know, they change. But regardless, yeah, I mean, the fact that we're talking about it, it's 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 an awesome thing. 
I mentioned listener fatigue before with a song like Nothing Else Matters, right? But there's also style fatigue that you can get with a band like, uh, you know, ACDC or Slayer, where it's, it's so much the same repeatedly. And, and if it's style fatigue or listener fatigue for the, uh, for the fan, how much more so it has to be for the uh, the band performing, right? I mean, uh, so part of uh, Metallica's longevity is that they've they've kept it interesting for themselves. Oh yeah, and then their last two albums of original output were incredible. I mean, I I think Death Magnetic and Hardwired hold up with oh, yeah. the uh, the '80s material definitely. I mean, honestly, the only Metallica album I have a hard time listening to, and I'm pretty sure that a lot of fans feel this way, is Saint Anger. <laughs> Just because, you know, where are Kirk's solos? Why is the production so bad? You know, like, and and I get it. At that point in their life, you know, James had just come out of rehab. You know, everything is documented in some kind of monster. I I will say this. um, To be talking with somebody who's in academia, especially in the realm of philosophy, is, is, is one thing, you know, that we can have this conversation and we can have opinions on it and we could, you know, dig deep into it. But I remember... If you ask me who the biggest villain was for Metallica or even of Metallica at the time, and I'm not going to say it was Lars. I actually agreed with him when it came to battling uh, Napster over copyright. And I'm not going to say it was Jason for quitting. I'm not going to say it was James for going to rehab and setting set times that Metallica would work on the album. No, I would have to say it was Phil Toll. You suck! You fucking suck! Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, forget Phil, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh. Saint Anger. It, it's funny, right? I mean, uh, I, I've spoken to to, to lots of fans, uh, trying to uh, to get input and have discussions and that sort of thing. Uh, and and there are, as you're probably aware, Lou, there are fans for whom that's their favorite album. And I've yet to meet one. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that, but the, they are out there, and I mean, a lot of the t- a lot of the time, it's uh, like you spoke about the load albums coming out when you're in high school. Uh, if Saint Anger came out when you were in high school, and that was the first album from Metallica that you heard, and you bought it with your own money, and you played it a thousand times. I can see how that happens. Uh, there's something really formative emotionally about those times. And, Timeline and it, is everything. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and some of those songs, for instance, uh, Metallica is playing, as we speak now, some European shows, and they've uh, added to the set list Dirty Window, which is actually a song with some really good lyrics, very self-reflective. Uh, am I who I think I am? I drink from the cup of denial, judging the uh, the world from my throne. Nice connection there in a way with King Nothing, another sort of song of, of self-reflection uh, that's in there. And uh, they've done a, a good job, uh, I think, with the, uh, the, the acoustic and symphony versions of All Within My Hands. Uh, there, there, are some, there are some things to, to listen to there, although I agree with you. I, I find it hard to try to sit down and, uh, and listen to the whole album all the way through. It just uh, is sort of punishing uh, in terms of its production and lack of solos, etc. But uh, there, there are some gems even there to be plucked. 
I'll have to give it another look, but yeah, all right. <laughs> I mentioned that uh, there's a lot of songs on the Blackout that I feel are overlooked. Which song would you say is probably their most overlooked? Yeah, so uh, in terms of a neglected song, maybe it's not quite as neglected anymore, but uh, Fixer got a, a finally got a live performance at the uh, 40th anniversary shows back in whenever that was, December, I think. Uh, and, and it's just a, a great song, uh, an album closer. Uh, and uh, it, it, it's a song that nicely illustrates something that Metallica has done very well. And that is even when they seem to be treading on a cliche, they don't quite go there. Right. So you could think of a song like uh, of Wolf and Man, which could just turn into. I love Ozzy, don't get me wrong, but it could turn into Bark at the Moon, just basically a werewolf song. Uh, but of Wolf and Man is, is uh, quite a bit more subtle than that. And, and likewise, uh, to make another Ozzy connection, Fixer could have turned into just a voodoo dolls kind of song like uh, Ozzy's Little Dolls. Uh, but it, it plays with issues of fade and free will uh, and it plays with uh, the pins as symbolic of, uh, of needles and addiction. And I think, uh, and this is something I haven't written about in the book, but the more I've, I've listened to Fixer, I think when you get to the end uh, section with Shell of Shotgun and Pint of Gin and, th and that whole verse, I think it's actually in some ways uh, a reference to the... the uh, the witches scene in uh, Macbeth and the famous phrase, something wicked this way comes mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the whole cauldron bubbling kind of thing. So th that to me is a, uh, is a neglected and underappreciated song. All right. All right. Thank you for sharing that. Have you noticed student engagement and enrollment increasing for your classes because you've become the philosopher who dissects pop culture? Well, uh, th there is some of that, I guess. Uh, I've, I've been doing it for, for long enough that it's uh, sort of taken for granted and maybe baked into, uh, you know, my, my reputation as a teacher. And of course, I've, uh, I've not been able to fully uh, keep up with uh, the changing face of pop culture and, and whatever the, uh, the students might, might be into. Some of my references get uh, a little... Uh, a little stale maybe and and these days quite frankly uh, i'm the the age or or older than most of their parents and and being a metallica fan i, I do get some metal fans and and metallica fans uh but that's uh as likely to uh, uh get the response of oh my dad likes them uh, as <laughs> as it is mm -hmm. i like them funny story so when death magnetic came out i remember first day purchase and just listening to the album religiously and they announced the tour and around me, they were coming to the Nassau Coliseum, which where I live is not that far from my house, which is perfect because I could just drive there, park my car and go and enjoy the concert. And uh, this is in 2008. And my, uh, my wife and her sisters are not metal fans at all. I, I think the hardest, my wife, the hardest music my wife listens to is either, you know, Def Leppard's Hysteria or White Snake's '87 <laughs> release. So, just to give you every, just to give everyone out there some context, and her sister Cassandra, who I love dearly, uh, when Aaron, my wife, when she purchased me uh, a Metallica concert ticket for 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 uh, for Christmas that year, 
the question Cassandra asked me was, is Metallica still relevant? What? <laughs> I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> still relevant? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, like, that, 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 that's right. And that, I mean, well, that, in a way, that kind of was a genuine question at the time, because that was the, the question, I think, that, that uh, album answered. Are they still relevant? I mean, I think that was one of the great comeback albums of, uh, of all time that showed that they were still relevant, that they, you know, they could still do it uh, and uh, people still should care. Yeah, to quote Gene Simmons, they came for your girlfriend, your mother, and your sister. So, you know, <laughs> I would say yes. Yeah, yeah. What would you say has been the most rewarding part of your journey as an author? Well, I mean, the, the, the most rewarding thing for me is just connecting with, uh, with readers and, uh, and listeners. So uh, in the book, and I'll, uh, I'll issue the invitation here as well, I give my, uh, my email address and my Twitter handle in the book, and I'm always... Uh, glad to hear from people uh, who've read or have listened to uh, a podcast. And uh, so I, I think of a book as a conversation starter as well as a, and, and not, I should say, not a conversation ender. Right. And so uh, I'm not Stephen King who can't uh, respond to all of the uh, contacts that he get. I, I tell people, you know, you, you read the book or you hear me on a podcast and uh, you have uh, something to say, you agree, you disagree, you like, you dislike, uh, send me an email or DM me on Twitter and uh, I'll be glad to respond and uh, glad to have a conversation. So that, that's, that's what I find rewarding because uh, the, the book itself, it's nice to see it sitting there uh, on the shelf, but it's really the interaction uh, with the reader and with the listener. Which leads me to my final question. If people want to find out more about you, Professor William Irwin, where can they find you on the internet? So please plug away. Yeah, okay, well, thanks. So just to remind people, the title of the, uh, the current book is The Meaning of Metallica, Ride the Lyrics, right? And you can get that anywhere that you want to get a book. A uh, big uh, website that starts with an A or another one that's initials B and N or bookstore near you or wherever. If you just Google my name, which is William Irwin, I-R-W-I-N, uh, you'll uh, come upon my uh, my webpage connected with my, uh, my college, King's College in Pennsylvania. My name, William Irwin at kings.edu is my email address. Feel free to email me. Uh, I'm at William Irwin 38 on Twitter. I don't do Twitter battles or anything like that, but I do respond to uh, DMs. You can find out uh, more about uh, other publications uh, that I've done on the, on the website or just uh, Googling around uh, searching uh, websites uh etc and i'm always glad to hear from people the meaning of metallica write the lyrics available now through ecw press thank you to claire pokorchak for setting this up and i just want to say professor william Irwin, thank you so much for coming on to my little podcast and engaging me in a great conversation about well philosophy metallica pop culture and uh things that i've never even touched upon in this uh podcast before you know the fact that we can have a conversation about it and not be preachy or condescending or you know any anything like that ilk has been a a great opportunity and experience for me as a podcast host and i'm just very grateful and appreciative for your time thank you so much 
yeah, thanks for having me, Lou. Keep up the great work and uh, look forward to hearing more from you in the future. Thank you so much. If you want to find out more about the Music is Live podcast, check us out over at musicislivepodcast.com. However, the site is currently going through changes, which means I haven't upgraded it yet. So go ahead and check out my link tree, which is Music is Live podcast. And also don't forget to check out our parent network, ratsareview.com. Once again, Professor William Irwin, thanks again for coming by. And remember, all art is valid. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Music Aside podcast brought to you by Anchor.fm and Ratsaw Review. Check out the other shows on Ratsaw Review, including Beyond Bushido, Old Man Metals Musings, The Right Opinion, The Vieira Vault, the Timo Toki Podcast, the BS Sessions with Mark and Jerry, Just the Cheese Please, and the Friday Night Party with the great Harry Barnett and Evie. Graphics by Rocky Baia. For commissions, find them on Twitter at R-O-C-K-Y-B-A-I-A. Intro and outro music for the show is Lose Control by The Rebel Medium, written by Jacqueline Guitard, Ernest Leyuk, and Lou Mavs. If you'd like to donate to the channel, please donate to our PayPal at musicislivepodcast at gmail.com. If you're in a band and you want us to review your music, then contact us at Maps at musicislivepodcast.com. Special thanks to Wayne Noon and Greg Noggle. With much love and gratitude to Aaron, Anna, and Aloysius. For more information, check out www.musicislivepodcast.com. And don't forget to check out www.ratsareview.com. Remember, all art is valid. Thanks for listening. Cheers. Music is Live Podcast. Let me do it again. <clears throat> Sorry, I was in mid, mid-gulp. Three, two, one. Music is Live Podcast. This is your host, Lou Matt. Calm down. You've done this a million times. <laughs> You've done this a million times. And he's a professor, but you're not in class right now. Oh, oh my God. Don't let that intimidate you. That'll be a great outtake. Anyway, okay. <laughs> in five, four, three.